Hey everyone, welcome back to Teen Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Craig Keener. We're going to be talking about the Book of Acts and all things related to that. So Craig, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's it's great to be with you, with you Zach. Well, I, I thought I was doing great. I'm a little bit tongue-tied, apparently. Well, I'm the same way. So I guess we're on the same page. I guess that counts for something. Um, so today we're talking about like the book of Acts, which we literally decided about like 30 seconds ago. Um, and yeah, so maybe like to start off, Craig, do you want to talk about like who you are, like what you do and what got you interested in like topics like the book of Acts? Sure. Well, who I am. I, I was I was converted from atheism 45 something years ago, uh, 40. I I forget. See, I'm not only tongue-tied, I'm bad with math. It's it's not that I forget when I was converted. It's just that I forget what year it is now. I'm absolutely mm-hmm. professor. But anyway, I was converted from atheism. I had a lot of questions still. And, you know, the little kids in Sunday school knew more about the Bible than I did. So, you know, now that I was a Christian, I had to start catching up. So I found out if you read 40 chapters of the Bible a day, you can get through it once a month or you can get to the New Testament every week. And the more I studied it, the more I realized there there are certain things that the authors were taking for granted that their audience already knew that I didn't necessarily know. So like Mm. um, the ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian Egyptian context for the Old Testament, the um, Greek and Roman and especially early Jewish context for the New Testament. And so, I mean, I knew some of it, but I hadn't really studied it with the New Testament in mind or the Bible in mind. So eventually, as I'm I'm doing this, immersing myself in the Bible, I'm also I also began immersing myself in the ancient background. And with regard to Acts, I do teach a PhD course in Acts here at Asbury Seminary. But I did a four-volume commentary on Acts. It's um, it's about forty-five hundred pages, about forty-five thousand references from outside the Bible, from ancient literature, uh, to just put it in in its context. That's too long. Most people won't read it. <laughs> so there's a there's also a trimmed down version. Uh, the bigger ones with Baker Academic. The trimmed down version is with Cambridge, and that's yeah. It's a one volume. And so anyway, so that's, um, yeah, I love the book of Acts and uh, I have a lot of background information on it that I think can can help, you know, like just learning about Felix and Festus and um, what we can know about the different figures there and how the events in Acts actually fit into larger themes of history. and. Reading Acts on its own actually is is just pretty exciting. I mean, the background helps you put it in a wider context, but just the themes in Acts, you know, Mark, I'm doing a commentary right now on Mark, which will take a few years, but Mark mentions the Holy Spirit six times. I love Mark. Mm. Uh, and what he says about the Spirit is great, but Luke mentions the Spirit about 60 times. So you can tell that's a major theme in, in Luke's two volumes, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And anyway, that should be enough to start with. But. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, so before we dive into Acts, I'm curious, you talked about how you have this like 4,000 page like commentary on Acts with like tens of thousands of footnotes. Like, like how do you put these things together? Like some people will be like, oh my gosh, like how does, how did Craig do it? Like, like how, like what's like kind of like, like what's like, what's the time commitment? Like, like how are you like producing these like amazing, um, pieces of work um by the grace of god yeah thank you yeah definitely by the grace of god if it were if it were now uh it would be actually easier than the way i did it because Mm. back when i started collecting the information i didn't have a computer Mm. so i mean i started collecting the information in index cards i didn't know i was going to be a scholar i just thought it was collecting background materials so when i preach i can explain the text more more accurately so I actually started this in uh, 1980 as a sophomore, collecting notes and index cards. By the time I transitioned to computer, I had about 100,000 index cards. I can mm. assure you that it's much easier not having to write it all out longhand and then file it by index cards and then have to look for 
you know, make sure you organize them right. It's so much easier to do all that on computer and it's easier to search and find for things. And now you can even copy and paste as I finally learned a few years ago <laughs> uh, from a number of sources it, and oh, things I spent years. But, anyway, <laughs> uh, but, but there was an advantage to the way I did it because I didn't just search uh, works, I read through them. Mm. So I got the context and could see what was representative of ancient literature rather than just, you know, I did a word search and found these 40 references. Well, actually, um, well, sometimes the concept is more widespread than the wording. Mm. Sometimes, yeah. Anyway, mm. so that, it was a lot of tedious work over the years. The Acts commentary, I spent all of my 40s on that. So if I look old, just think how young I'd be if I hadn't written. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, I spent about 10 years doing the, the four volume one to, to make it, you know, make the research available to everybody. The index took me 14 months. Wow. Full time. I mean, I was also teaching full time, but at the PhD level, teaching full time doesn't mean you actually teach 40 hours a week. You know, mm -hmm. they build in some time for research and so on. So I was putting in like 60 hour weeks just indexing that. And <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so it's not for everybody. I mean, the Book of Acts is for everybody, but my particular research thing it's, yeah you mm. <laughs> i i needed to recover after i finished it was a hard thing yeah so one of the things you talked about that's super important like when we're like overviewing acts is talking about the context um so i'd love for you to maybe like dive in like what is the context because i was thinking about like even like in conversations i have like if someone like you're having a conversation with someone and someone else just walks in and has no idea what you're talking about they may hear something and be like, wait, what, what are you, what's happening here? Um, and like, I had that picture in my mind as you were talking about the context of Acts. Like, what is this context in Acts that's going to help us understand it as we approach the book? Yeah. Context in, in the sense, uh, people also speak in terms of background, Bible background hmm. is really important. That's why I wrote the background commentary years ago. The background is important. It's like my wife, Medine, is from Congo. Her first language is French. And so, you know, after we got married, I would say to her things like, Je t'aime, I love you. Mm. And I thought she'd say, I love you too. Je t'aime, moi aussi. But she would say, Merci, thank you. I was like, Oh, I just love you. But it was, I mean, culture extends even to how we express appreciation and how we express romance. That was the appropriate response in her culture. And she couldn't understand why I walked away looking sad. You know, so it took us a while to find out, you know, we didn't just come from different personal backgrounds. We came from different cultural and linguistic backgrounds. And so that's important. You know, when we're reading a text that was written 2000 years ago, the Bible, it's God's message to us. And because it's God's message, it's for today, just like it was for them. It still speaks to us today, but because God spoke it in a particular situation, uh, and it's a written text, so we need to, you know, use the kind of tools we would use to read texts, which includes context and background. So, um, knowing a lot about what was going on in Jerusalem is important for the early chapters of Acts. Knowing what was going on in the wider Greco-Roman world is important for later on. To, to, to give you one example, a some decades ago, there was a scholar who estimated that Jerusalem's population in the time of Jesus and in the beginning of Acts would have been around 25,000. Now, when you have... Uh, or, or you have. Um, Can you go back just a sec? Because he cut off for just like you, you yeah. said the population was about 25,000 and we lost you. Um, so can you go yeah. back there? Mm -hmm. 
So one scholar said the population of Jerusalem was about 25,000. This was a few decades ago. He said this uh, regarding Jerusalem in the time of Jesus and the book of Acts or the early part of the book of Acts. But Acts 21.20 tells us there were tens of thousands of Judean believers. Acts tells us about, you know, the number of believers coming to 5,000, you know, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, but that included diaspora Jews, but then coming to, to 5,000. Well, how does that work? Well, since then, there's been more study, and scholars have, have estimated, no, it's not that Luke had to be exaggerating. It's that, well, Jerusalem's population was probably closer to 70 to 85,000, and so yeah, it makes more room for, for what for what Luke describes, and then people say, well, when they were, could you really baptize three thousand people on the Temple Mount in Acts two forty one? Um, that's a lot of people to get through their baptisms in one day. But the way they did baptisms back then, people would dunk themselves forward. You know, you just have somebody mm -hmm. supervising. You didn't actually need somebody uh, hold your nose and go back and <laughs> whatever. And, and also, the Temple Mount was full of baptismal pools. And, and besides the, the regular, what were called mikvah, these baptismal pools uh, that you would step down into, they had these massive pools you could step down into, like the Pool of Siloam and the Pool of Bethesda mentioned in the Gospel of John. They, it would be easy for 3,000 people to baptize themselves on the Temple Mount back then. Uh, normally, what they would do in, in that uh, Jewish setting was they would they would immerse themselves. Um, so later rabbis said, if you got so much as a string of a beam between your teeth, it invalidated the immersion. So they they were really all all into this, you know, com completely naked baptism, not not mm. not the kind of the way we do it today. I don't think that John the Baptist was doing naked baptisms co-ed in the Jordan or something like that. But just uh, it gives us more of a sense of what the of what the general practice was, and mm. th th those are just some examples from early in the Book of Acts that shed light on it, and also answer some people's objections to the reliability of Acts. Mm. That's awesome. So let's let's dive into this like historical reliability. Like, why think that the Book of Acts? Like, why think this is like a historically reliable document where um, you can actually believe what's written in it? Um, first, I should mention that the majority of scholars agree that Acts is a historical monograph. That is, the, the, the some works, there's a lot of debate about genre. There's been a lot of debate about the genre of Acts. But when you take the, the total number of scholars who published in the subject, the strong majority agree that it's a historical monograph. Second most common is biography, which really overlaps a lot with historiography. So those two pretty much um, are in the same camp. Now, how reliable was ancient biography or historiography expected to be? Well, for his historians, they were supposed to be very reliable. Uh, didn't mean they always met up to the standard, but they could be savagely critiqued by their peers if they didn't you know, stay with stay with factual information. Some of them like to spice it up with, you know, um, dramatic scenes. You know, they dramatize things. So, um, one ancient historian, Polybius, complains that um, you know about this other historian who says about these these women and children being carried off as slaves after their city is destroyed. That that they're weeping and wailing, and and the historian says, "Ah, you're just you're just playing on people's emotions with that." But mm -hmm. come on, would they not be weeping and wailing as they were being carried off? So, I mean, you had different standards and things like that. But but it was supposed to be based on factual information. Some people say, "Well, that's what." Of course, historians would tell you that. But it's not just historians who said that. It was orators who said that. It was. Um, Aristotle said that. He, he said that the, the main difference between history and epic poetry is not their narrative format. The main difference is that history was expected to be based on fact. Mm 
Pliny the Younger, as he's writing to friends who are historians, you know, he talks about this. And uh, Lucian in the second century talks about this. He makes fun of, you know, he exaggerates um, uh, and takes some, you know, takes the task some novelistic writers, just really, really funny exaggeration, but I'm getting off point. So the, the genre is important. Um, also, you know, for literary techniques, you can look at any kind of narrative work. You can look at novels, you can look at history, whatever. But in terms of people say, well, Acts has an agenda. It's trying to get you to, to live a different way or the gospel is trying to get you to live a different way. That's true. But in ancient literature, usually novels didn't do that. Novels were for pure entertainment. But history and biography actually did have moral agendas, sometimes political agendas and so on but they were supposed to communicate them by fact. That's what mm -hmm. distinguished them from other kinds of discourses. And so, uh, you know, in, in terms of how much flex room they took, you know, with, with biography, there's, there's debate about that. Depends on the biographer, but with history in general, you know, they, well, there, there are a couple ways you can test them. You can, you can test the historian just to see how much flex room they took were they writing about the recent past or the distant past? They're writing about the distant past. They often didn't have as much concrete information. They often admitted they were depending on legends or myths if they were writing about things in like 800 years earlier. When they were writing about the past 100, 150 years or so, they, they, were, they had lots of sources available and they often stuck really closely to their sources. And you can test that out. I, I tested it with some ancient works, testing the different sources against each other, just to see how much they were relying on sources rather than just freely composing. And you know, when they were writing about recent history, it was you know, pretty close. Another way you can test it is to see how they use their sources. Now, when you check how Luke uses Mark in Luke's gospel, you know, he stays, by, by the standards of antiquity, he stays really close to his source. In fact, um, by elite standards, some people would have accused Luke and Matthew of plagiarizing Mark, which mm -hmm. isn't really fair because that was just the elite standards. It wasn't everybody's standards, but they, they stuck closely to their sources. And then, um, <clears throat> and then what we can test in the book of Acts uh, we don't have another book of Acts we can test it against, another first century book of Acts we can test it against. But what we do have are a lot of places where Acts refers to historical events. Now, given that it's 2000 years later, there's a lot of stuff we can't test because you know, <laughs> we can't just mm -hmm. go ask somebody and um, most ancient newspapers haven't survived. I'm speaking figuratively, but... Um, <laughs> We do have we do have enough material from archaeology and especially from ancient historians. We can test a lot of things in the Book of Acts, and mm -hmm. where we can test Acts, Luke stays so close to the information. We've got about two places where there are major questions that historians raise about Acts, and then we've got a whole mess of places where Acts is just corroborated with with ancient historical sources, which is. You know, 2,000 years later, considering what we've got left, that's that's a pretty good track record. In fact, mm. um, one, I mean, I deal with this at some length, but there's one writer who spent like 100 pages comparing acts with external sources, just showing how it fits ancient historians, how it fits, um, well, where, where we can compare it with Paul's letters. Now, some people don't like, uh, they say that Luke's theology is different from Paul's, and so Luke couldn't really have known Paul. And they say that primarily because Luke presents Paul as a law-observant Jew. But the people who's, who say, yeah, I can't be that, I mean, that's, that's a, a long-standing tradition in Acts studies. The more skeptical scholars will say, well, you know, Luke must not really understand the heart of Paul because he has Paul you know, keeping a vow and doing other Jewish things, or it wasn't just a Jewish thing to keep a vow. 
X1818 and X21 often sacrifice in the temple for some Nazarites. But guess what? Today, most Pauline scholars think that that's the way Paul was. So it's like hmm. it was a misunderstanding of Paul that led people to criticize the accuracy of acts luke actually yeah. got it right <laughs> anyway mm. yeah that's super great so what i'm what i'm trying to understand is so when we're making like when you make a case for the historical reliability of acts one of the things that we wonder like about history is the idea like you referenced like aristotle and others are like well are they giving us like facts it's not necessarily about like necessarily the structure of it or things going on but it's really about like are they getting facts right mm-hmm. um and like what you're trying to say is like well, Axe gets these facts right. The ones that we can verify, um, it's getting them right. And that's going to give us like a really good reason to think it's historically reliable. Am I, am I tracking with you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so is there, oh, I was wondering. Well, like, so it, examples, but, but they're just examples. I mean, we could go on for hours and hours. With, yeah. Maybe give a couple of examples. Yeah. And then we'll go to what I was thinking. Okay. So we have uh, governors who governed at certain times. So, we, we happen to know, of course, there's a lot we don't know about ancient governors. I mean, the governors of Cyprus, we have the names of only one-fifth of them left from antiquity. So, you know, hit and miss there. But, but with regard to Gallio, who appears in Acts chapter 18, verse 12, and following, he's governor of Achaia, uh, the uh, uh, capital of which was Corinth. And we, we know from ancient sources exactly what years, pretty close to what years, he was governor of Corinth. And so when Paul appears before him, that fits the narrative of the book of Acts. Well, we also know roughly when Felix was, we don't know exactly when he started, but we know about when Felix stopped being governor of Judea. We know about when Festus (coughs) became the new governor of Judea. And uh, we also know that uh, Felix was married to, to three different princesses at different times. But at the time when Paul would have appeared before him, he was married to Drusilla. Well, that fits Acts because Paul appears before Felix when Felix is married to Drusilla. Um, when Felix is recalled to Rome, Festus comes it all fits the chronology of Acts perfectly. Um, Agrippa had a sister named Bernice. She was married to somebody. The marriage broke up. She came back and stayed with her brother Agrippa. And that was at the same time that they appeared together in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 25. Ancient novelists, we have lots of ancient novels, not as many as ancient histories or, or biographies, but we have enough of them to say they didn't really go back and research most of them were just romances that people made up. They weren't actually even based on historical figures. But even the ones that were based on historical figures, they didn't go back and do research on this stuff. But Acts get this, gets this stuff right consistently in a way that ancient novels didn't. Mm, that's super great. So what I was wondering about is wondering, so we talked about like Acts gets a lot of things right. What about the things we can't verify? Um, obviously, you know, we're talking about ancient history a couple thousand years back. So, you know, it's inevitable that like, we're going to run into things that you just you can't really verify. So I'm wondering, like my thought for you is like, how does Acts compare to like other documents in terms of like the percentage of things that like just can't be verified? And like, does that make any impact when thinking about um, the reliability of Acts? <clears throat> Part of part of it depends on, you know, in terms of what can be verified, depends on whether we have other documents that cover the same material. We have a mm-hmm. lot that we can verify with Acts because we have Paul's letters. So for the later part of Acts, we have a lot of material there. Um, and, and once it gets gets out into the wider Mediterranean world, we have a whole lot of things we can make comparisons with. So the things that can't be verified I think are fewer actually in Acts than they are with some other documents that are historical monographs about a particular movement or a particular situation in ancient history. Now, in terms of things that a lot of historians wrote about and that we have a lot of records surviving, like I mean, the Gospels, you know, you have um, 
Scholars talk about multiple attestation in the sources in the Gospels. Well, we have four Gospels, so we have more to work with in that sense than we do with the Book of Acts. Uh, people writing about Caesar, uh, the life of Julius Caesar. Well, we have a lot of people writing about that in antiquity. So um, one of the things that I worked on were biographies of Otho. The, the, uh, he was a Roman emperor who's not too well known today, and for good reason. He didn't last very long, but anyway... Um, you look at the different biographies of Otho and then what the historians wrote about Otho. I mean, there's so much overlap because there was a lot of material written. Um, I mean, you have multiple sources written about it. But then you have, you have biographies written by people who actually knew the person about whom they were writing, where we can attest externally only 4%. So... I mean, they presumably got it right, most of it, because they knew the person, but we can't attest it just because we don't have any other surviving sources. So, you know, you, you don't want to argue from silence about the stuff you can't verify. What you want to do is verify what you can and say, okay, well, if we can verify 20% of it, if we can verify 50% of it or 60% of it, that's a really high percentage for anything in antiquity, but... You know, when we can verify a lot of it, we can say, okay, this this writer, where we can test them, they're pretty accurate. So where we can't test them, let's take their word for it. I mean, mm. their testimony is itself a form of evidence about ancient history. Um, not saying that they didn't have an agenda, but again, their agendas were supposed to be based on information. Now, if... If you've got a writer who gets it wrong a lot where you test him, say Cornelius Nepos, writing toward the end of the Roman Republic, writing about Greek figures, he, he makes a lot of mistakes. You take that into account. You know, when you when he's the only one whose testimony we have for it, well, you know, there's like a 30% chance he might be making a mistake, you know. Mm -hmm. But hey, we got a 70% chance he's probably right. So yeah. Anyway. Mm. This is powerful. So we talked about historical reliability and like laying the foundation that acts is really grounded in like these facts that can be verified. So I'd be curious then maybe let's talk about like, what's the message and the meaning of acts? Like what is um, like Luke, like what is the book trying to communicate um, maybe first to its audience, like at the time, cause it wasn't written directly towards us. And then we can like look at it more like towards ourselves. So let's start with like to that, like what, what is, what is Luke doing writing acts at that time? Like what's his goal? Yeah. He actually, states it pretty well up front in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Mm -hmm. Not not every ancient writer did that, but I'm really glad Luke does it. It makes it easier. <laughs> yeah. But um, where, the, where the gospel of Luke ends and then the book of Acts begins, he recapitulates some of the major themes at the end of Luke's gospel. So if this stuff gets stated twice, it's going to be a major theme for, for um, Luke's two-volume work as a whole. You will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be witnesses for, for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, he is speaking to the 11. Um, there weren't 12 at this time because Judas got, well, Judas is out, and so they're mm -hmm. going to have to replace him. But, um, He's speaking to the 11, but we know from Luke chapter 24, it's the 11 and those who are with them. So it wasn't limited just to the 11 members of the, the 12, original 12. It's, it's to those who are witnesses of what Jesus has done. And we see in the book of Acts that that keeps getting extended. So the, the same uh, Isaiah text that's implied in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is applied to Paul in Acts 13, 47, I think, um, but, you know, to the ends of the earth. So you have uh, the, 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 the original apostles become a model for us because the mission wasn't completed in the first century. The gospel going to the ends of the earth is an ongoing mission. Mm. And just like they needed the power of the Spirit to fulfill that mission, we need the power of the Spirit to fulfill that mission too. So most scholars think that the book of Acts is open-ended. It doesn't end in Rome because Rome is the ends of the earth. 
literally, but because Rome is kind of representative of the ends of the earth. Uh, you've got a few earlier representations of that, like Acts 827, where uh, Philip is, is going to meet this African court official from the kingdom of Meroe. We know it was Meroe because the official is from a kingdom whose queen's title is the Kendaka. We often say Candace. Mm. Uh, but that was the that was the, the title for uh, the queen mother in Meroe, which was um, an African kingdom um, south of Egypt. And so um, that was often considered the ends of the earth in mm. ancient sources. So you've got it foreshadowed there. You've got it foreshadowed in Acts chapter 28. You have it foreshadowed in the day of Pentecost where you have these Jewish people from every nation under heaven. Mm. Um, and actually the every nation under heaven, the, the list of nations he gives there probably evokes to the biblically literate ideal audience of Luke probably evokes the first list of nations in scripture in Genesis chapter 10 and kind of updates it for current uh, ge geograph ge geographic um, nomenclature, the, the labels that would be used in Luke's day. But it's interesting that Genesis 10 was directly followed by Genesis 11, where you've got the Tower of Babel and the mm -hmm. languages are scattered. Well, here on the day of Pentecost, the languages are scattered, but this time it's not as judgment. This time it's it's God coming down not to judge, but God pouring out the spirit on his people and actually sanctifying the languages of all the nations. So it's not just that Hebrew is, is the holy language. Hebrew still is, but all the languages are holy when it's God's message being spoken in them. So, um, so we see at this first outpouring of the spirit in the book of Acts, how it fits the theme already in Acts chapter one, verse eight. You'll be witnesses. You'll be able to speak for me like Peter does in the day of Pentecost. Uh, and, and the disciples as they're magnifying God, uh, praising God in these languages that they haven't learned. What greater sign could God give on the day of Pentecost that he was empowering his people to uh, speak prophetically for him to the ends of the earth mm. than that he would empower them to worship him in other people's languages. Mm. And we don't see this every time that there's an outpouring of the spirit in the book of Acts, but we do see it two more times, which is more often than we see the, the wind and the fire from Acts chapter two. And, uh, and, it, and it shows that this is a continuing uh, a continuing action that God continues to pour out his spirit and a key focus of this outpouring of the spirit is power for mission to the ends of the earth. Now, mm. for the first people that Jesus was addressing, he's addressing them as those who are going to start in Jerusalem, spread to Judea and Samaria, uh, and then the ends of the earth, you know, by the time you get to chapter chapter 13, it's pretty much, you know, starting to go to go out beyond the, the places specifically specified. And we're still in that period where the gospel is still going out to the ends of the earth. We still need we still need the power of God's spirit to accomplish that. Mm. So that's a major theme in the book of Acts. Something else that's important. The immediate context of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus has been talking, I think, around verse 3 about the kingdom, which he talks a lot about in the Gospel of Luke. He is talking in verse verses 4 and 5 about the coming of the Spirit and being baptized in the Spirit. And then in, you know, the disciples ask him what would be the obvious question for people who knew the Old Testament. Well, God said he was going to pour out the Spirit well, when would that be? That would be at the end time, at the time when God was going to restore his people. So they ask him the obvious question in, in verse, 
verse 6, is this the time that you're going to restore the king to Israel? To which Jesus replies, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father is placed in his own power. But this is the issue for you now. Uh, not, not when God is going to restore the kingdom in its fullness, but, but uh, what scholars often talk about, the already, not yet. Here's the already part of it. You'll receive power when the spirit comes on you. The spirit was considered an eschatological gift, that is a gift that would be poured out at the end time. And so for, for Jesus to say, you're going to receive the spirit, that the prophets prophesied for the end is in a sense to say, you're going to receive a foretaste of the future. Mm. It's going to be like a piece mm. of heaven put inside of you mm. or in, you know, or yeah, the, the God himself coming to live inside of us and different, different parts of scripture emphasize different aspects of the spirit's work, the fruit of the spirit Paul talks about the gifts of the spirit Paul talks about, but here, especially talking about the power of the spirit for evangelism, not that that's separate from everything else, but to be witnesses for, for Christ about what he's done, who he is. And when Jesus says to be my witnesses, he's again evoking the language of that section of Isaiah that says, where God says, you shall be my witnesses. Jesus is saying, you shall be my witnesses. Who's Jesus? Well, he's God mm -hmm. in the flesh. And you also see that in Peter's sermon. He quotes from Joel, where God says, I'll pour out my spirit in all flesh. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus pours out the spirit. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to digress now. But, um, mm. but it is interesting. After Jesus gives this promise, he ascends to the Father in, in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, just like Elijah ascended right after promising Elisha a double portion of the same spirit who'd been on Elijah. Hmm. So, yeah, we're supposed to carry on this mission. Hmm. We have different roles in it individually, but we as God's people are to carry on this mission that Jesus modeled for us, that the um, Jerusalem apostles modeled for us, that Paul and his companions modeled for us to reach the ends of the earth with the good mm. That's so cool, Craig. Like, I, like as you're talking, I'm just thinking about this, and I'm like, it's like, it's like me, like me, Zach Seckler, like you, Craig Keener, like our job is the same job as like the apostles was. Um, we have different roles, and like we've been given the same Holy Spirit, yeah. and like we're here to reach those people and reach all these like, like I think about all the unbelievers I know in my own life and the people just far beyond me that I've never even met before. And it's like, it's everyone. And like, it's, it's all hands on deck and we're all called as a Christian like body. And we all get to like have the opportunity to reach everyone. Like, it seems like it's just like, to me, I'm like, there's no, like, there's no last kid picked on the team in this situation. It's all hands on deck and we need everyone. So I don't know. I just, I just think that's so cool thinking about that. And just, I'm amazed by that. I, I was always one of the last ones picked. So I'm glad. <laughs> Um, so what does this mean? I mean, I think we're, we've been hitting at it. Um, but what is this, like, how does this impact us today, Craig? Like you read the book of Acts, like, how does it impact you and like maybe your spiritual formation? And like, you think is like a Christian community, like how should we be reading Acts and seeing it like play out in our own lives? Yeah. Oh boy. There's so much there. I mean, there's mm -hmm. so many, so many models for ministry. Some of them were culture specific, but they still give us concrete models for how we can adapt those for for our culture. But one, one uh, I think, transcultural principle we have, and we know it's transcultural, Jesus taught it, is go going back to Luke's first volume, Luke chapter 11, you have a passage that's parallel to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 7 to 11, it's parallel in Luke 11, 11 to 13. But Matthew says, if you, if you know how to give your children good gifts, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Mm. And Luke, it focuses on a particular good gift, the best gift of all, God's own presence. <clears throat> if you know how to give your children good gifts, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? <clears throat> and what do we see in Acts? 
Well, Jesus gives this promise of the Spirit, and he's been with them for 40 days. Well, Pentecost is 50 days after the beginning of that. So for the next 10 days, they're gathering together for prayer meetings, praying for the outpouring of the Spirit. And what happens? God pours out the Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, after, well, actually, they, they keep praying a lot because they're, they're, they're actually on their way to a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 3 when the man is healed in the temple. But after the man is healed, the authorities are like, wait, you need to stop preaching in this man's name. And you're going you're gonna to get in trouble if you keep doing this and send them away. And Peter and John go back and report this to the rest of the believers. And they gather together and they pray again. And they pray that God will continue to give them boldness by stretching forth his hand to heal. And that signs and wonders would be done by the name of his holy servant, Jesus and when they finish the prayer in verse 31 of chapter 4, the, the house where they're gathered is shaken. Um, I'm glad that doesn't usually happen during prayer meetings, but hey, <laughs> happened during the Hebrides revival. Uh, some, some of these things have happened periodically in history. Uh, it happens, uh, actually, there's an earthquake in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas are singing uh, in the Philippian jail. But anyway, but the place is shaken where they're assembled and it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak the word of God with boldness. Not in every case, but in a number of cases in the book of Acts, we see the outpouring of the Spirit following prayer. Acts chapter 8, when Peter and John go, up, uh, go to Samaria, and they lay hands on Samaritans, and it says they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So uh, that shows us how important it is to pray, uh, to welcome the work of the Spirit in our lives. Now, yeah. I know the Spirit comes into us when we're born again, um, but Paul also speaks of praying for believers, like in Ephesians 1 um, and elsewhere, he speaks of, of praying for them that they may receive the Spirit of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, they can, they can have more of an experience of the Spirit. You don't have to stop. Just because, well, I, I already have the Spirit. Yeah, but you can you can experience more of the Spirit. We always want to be more open, welcome God mm. to be more in our lives, um, whatever he wants to do. Again, that's going to look different with different individuals. But, um, and, and, but Acts isn't even focusing so much on the individuals, although Paul is filled with the Spirit in Acts 9.17. Acts is focused especially on the, the outpouring of the Spirit on believers corporately. And that often tacks with what we call revival these days. Uh, so it is biblical to pray for God to pour out the Spirit and pray for signs and wonders in, in, a, in, a, in a general way. Um, and, but then we need to let it look like the way God wants it to look like and not, not put it into a mold, pre-existing mold of what it has to look like. And Acts 13, it says the believers were filled with the Spirit and joy. In Acts 2 and Acts 4, one of the major long-term results of the outpouring of the Spirit was they cared for one another's needs financially. And uh, the church actually began doing that cross-culturally in, in Acts 11.30 and 12.25. We, we read about that. So... Um, Different, different outpourings of the Spirit may have different emphases. Let God do what he wants. Just let's pray that God will do what he wants with us. Let's welcome, welcome all the... Anyway, anyway I'm, I'm going off on stuff again, but uh, it's hard for me not to preach. That's No, I mean, there's no shame in that. Um, yeah, I mean, the Holy Spirit, like, ooh, that's so, it's just so important. It's hard not to just, like, go crazy and just get excited about that because it's, it's God pouring himself into us, um, looking at, like, us praying for others, saying, hey, like, like God, like the third person, the Trinity, like is here. Um, it can be like be impactful in our lives. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't blame you. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing. I'm like, why doesn't he just like stop talking? I'm, there's nothing there that, at all on that end of things. So yeah, I think that's great. So we talked about the spirit. Um, one thing I was thinking about is one of the things like I personally struggle with is I'm always like oriented towards like the next task, next task. What do we got to do? What do we got to do? And I can't imagine like, as a scholar, like you're 
a teacher, like you work in a university um, and you have all those obligations. And you also have like, you're, you're pr producing just a massive amount of like academic work and things like this. Um, but like talking with you, I just feel like the presence of God, like, you know, like, you know, like I've listened to conversations in the past. I like, I just feel um, like the spirit's presence here. Like in, even in this conversation, it's like, how do you manage that? Cause it seems like there's so much going on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure you don't have all the answers, but like, like, what do you think when I'm throwing all this at you? Well, I do pray for the spirit. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, do, I try to be sensitive to the spirit, try to be led by the spirit. And I do spend time in prayer each day. That's one of my priorities. I mean, I spend a lot of time on my, my, my writing work. Ideally, on the ideal day, it's like 10 hours a day. Um, I'm actually ADHD, so that's not easy for me. It's mm -hmm. been a discipline that I've acquired over the years. Um, but I can get hyper-focused, so that's that part of it is good. But, um, mm. but I, <laughs> and so when you see me go off on tangents, yep, that's the ADHD guy, which is very entertaining <laughs> for my students, by the way. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the in terms of the research, it helps me with inter, um, interdisciplinary work and so on. Now, in terms of how I discipline my time. I don't normally watch television. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like legalistically against it. And I think pastors, you know, they need to know what their people in their congregation, what kind of stuff they're watching so they can address, you know, be, be relevant. But, you know, for me as a scholar, I just don't, I only have time to do so many things. I have to mm -hmm. put down so many good things that if there's something that doesn't need to be done, I try to cut it. Mm. Family time is necessary. Obviously, eating is necessary, except when you're fasting. Mm -hmm. uh, prayer time is necessary. Now, in terms of um, sleeping, there was a time when I thought sleeping wasn't as necessary. I, I found out that I could actually, in emergency situations, I was actually able to function for a day or two on three hours of sleep. Hmm. But after I ended up in the hospital, I found out I, I can't do that regularly. <laughs> yeah, so yes, sleeping is also necessary, and I mm -hmm. actually take a day a day of rest each week. Um, it's a biblical biblical uh, concept, and um, and so with all that in view, I I still can put in like ten hours a day. On, on, on most days. I mean, I can't do it on, on days when I have classes. I, my classes are on two days of the week. Uh, my meetings are usually on those same days. So it's the other days, and, and not the Sabbath that I take, but the other days. Um, and then on the days when I do have classes, as much time as I can spend, I spend on the, on the research of the writing. Mm. Of course, it benefits the, the classes and at least at the doctoral level, the um, engagement with my doctoral students also enriches my own my own thinking, my own research. Uh, I credit them when they when you know they they give me some information that I didn't have before, but mm. uh, cite them in the note, whatever. But uh, <clears throat> and even even when I'm teaching or or doing a podcast or something. It's a break. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, right. So mm -hmm. when when all else fails, when my brain is just too fried, uh, sometimes I'll draw silly cartoons. But huh. but I try. I just try to be a really good steward of my time because mm. you know I've got this one life, and I want to make it count. Insofar as as it depends on me, I want it to count completely for Jesus. So that a hundred billion trillion years from now, you know, this this one short life, I'll, I'll be able to say thank you, God, for helping me to make this count as best as I could. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I feel like this is a really good spot to start to close up here. Um, hope people come away feeling like impacted from this. So. Anything else you want to say, Craig, with regards to anything that we've been talking about um, as we start to wrap up here? Sure. I know one of the topics we discussed at the beginning, we threw out like three different topics <laughs> before we started the uh, 
the um, video. Mm -hmm. But one of the topics we, we talked about was miracles. And that does tie into the reliability of acts because people sometimes, uh, that, that was actually one of the objections people raised. And it was historically the reason for, for skepticism regarding the Gospels and Acts. The major reason was they said, well, these report miracles. And in the Western world today, we don't believe in miracles. And eyewitnesses would never claim these kind of things. And I was like, that's really not a good argument. <laughs> because mm -hmm. I know eyewitnesses have claimed a lot of these things. And I've seen some of these things myself. So... Uh, Early on in the Acts commentary, I started digressing on a footnote to say, well, you know, we can actually document that eyewitnesses do claim these things. But the footnote grew and grew. And after a couple hundred pages, it became a separate book. It was the first book on miracles. And then the more recent one is more, more readable. It's just one volume. It's short. It's uh, inexpensive. Uh, miracles today. And... I just give samples of, of eyewitness accounts. Somebody who doesn't like eyewitness accounts, well, we give medical document. Where we can. <laughs> are, you, are you back? Yeah, you cut uh, off for a second. You're talking about um, the documentation and stuff. So you just like the past 15 seconds I missed. So maybe you want to pick up right back there. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so some people, we, we give uh, eyewitness accounts of pretty much the same in the Gospels and Acts, obviously not the incarnation, the virgin birth, or, or you know, Jesus' resurrection from the dead to a, you know, the beginning of the new creation. But we do have examples of, of people after prayer who've been dead for over an hour, coming back to life, breathing again with medical documentation. If some of it is actually posted publicly, so anyway, we have plenty of plenty of evidence for people to say this stuff never happens. Actually, it does. I mean, it doesn't happen to each of us all the time, but we do have we do have evidence to say you can't say eyewitnesses never claim this stuff. You you can't say it never happened. If you start with the presupposition that God can't do something like that, well, you know, find another explanation for it. We can talk about it, but you can't say that these things don't happen because they're widely documented. In fact, there was one survey where you've got, it's shown that there are hundreds of millions of people who've witnessed uh, what they consider to be divine healing. Again, mm -hmm. yeah. nobody would say that everything that everybody claims is is that, but <clears throat> uh, but we do have we do have sufficient evidence that you don't want to call the Gospels and Acts into question just because they talk about these things. Um, Jesus mm. is doing them. Yeah. Well, Craig, this has been so great. I know we're approaching that deadline. So thank you so much for coming on today. I really, really appreciate um, this time, this conversation. I'll put a link down below to your website so people can check out you and your work and all the fun stuff. And yeah, that's it. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time today. Thank, thank you so much, Zach. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you have a good one. Um, if you value our content, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you um, want to support it, you can go to patreon.com slash you can hear project. Literally, it's a dollar a month, and your support would mean a lot. But that's it, and we'll catch you next time. God bless.